Football CFP. This is an episode I, I can't believe I've got the pleasure of doing. I'm speaking to genuinely one of my top ever footballing idols, Matt Letissi. Matt, thank you for joining me. It really does mean a lot. Pleasure, mate. No problem at all. Looking forward to it. I want to get the, <clears throat> pardon me, the obvious question out of the way first. You got eight England caps. In my opinion, you were a world-class player who played at Southampton, a great club, and admire the fact you were a one-club man. But for me, eight England caps with someone of your ability is nowhere near enough. How do you reflect on that now? Because for me, it's one of the biggest injustices in, in international football. Um, that's very kind to say so. Uh, and it's also, uh, it's probably... Uh, I probably feel a lot better that people say you should have had more caps than than have got fifty caps, and people go, "How did you get that many?" <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I mean, looking back, it was disappointing. But at the end of the day, um, getting picked for your national team is uh, something that's kind of out of your hands. You do what you do for your club. You do your best you can for your club. If the if the manager who's managing the national team doesn't think that you're good enough to play in his team, uh, I'm afraid there's absolutely sob all you can do about it so uh, I'm pretty philosophical about it I did what I did uh, I did my best for my club um, and it just wasn't good enough for um, for the, the managers to, to give me more of a run this team In terms of the book I've got the book here Taking Letiz it's one of my favourites and one of the things that interests me about the book is when you talk about the hat-trick you scored for the England B team and how that you thought well what else could you have done you scored a hat-trick you'd, you'd been asked to play in that game you did the job to the best of your ability, a hat-trick as well, to take home the match ball. Is that when you thought you were going to get the pick and the nod for the tournament in, in 98? I, I certainly thought that after after that night, um, I certainly thought I'd done enough to get in the squad of 30 that was going to go to, to La Manga for the, the training trip over there before the squad then got tripped down, uh, trimmed down to 23. Um, and so when I scored the hat-trick that night, I thought, uh, you know, you know, it was the last B game before the before the squad was going to be announced, and you know I couldn't have really done any more in the game. I scored three, I hit the post, I hit the bar. Uh, I had probably one of the best ninety-minute performances of my career. Um, you know, under the pressure of it being this last chance to to show what you're worth. So I, I thought it was a bit strange when uh, when I didn't make the squad of thirty. Um, however, when I then looked at the squad, I, I assumed at that point. That Glenn probably thought he, he couldn't take me and Gaza, um, uh, and and that it was kind of a, a straight pick between the two of us, and uh, and he chosen Gaza, and I and I kind of reconciled with that. You know, I I think Gaza was the greatest player, English player of my generation, so um, I, I couldn't really have any complaints about that. What really did um, surprise me was when the squad did get trimmed down to twenty three. They didn't take, didn't bother taking Gaza either. Uh, and at that point, I kind of went, ah, well, that's a bit odd. <laughs> uh, and then I couldn't quite kind of work out why he wouldn't take either of us. Um, you know, two of the two of the most creative players, game-changing players that you could have had in the squad, uh, of which he was a similar type in, in his playing days. You would have thought he might have have had some kind of uh, empathy towards us. Staying on Glen Hoddle, if we rewind back to the very start, you were growing up in Guernsey, but I believe you were a Spurs fan and Hoddle was your all-time hero. Yeah, he was indeed, yeah. I did grow up a Spurs fan. I probably grew up a Spurs fan because I was a Glen Hoddle fan. It was kind of that way around, really. I just loved the way that he played football. He was, um, it was just so effortless for him. Uh, and I think that's kind of what I, uh, I've kind of analysed it 
when I look back at my childhood and I look at all the people who were my childhood idols in the, in the various sports, I played a lot of sports. So I didn't, I didn't just have football in my life. You know, I, I was a, a big cricket fan. Um, you know, a bit later on in life, I loved golf. You know, I played hockey, I played table tennis, I played badminton, I played squash, I played tennis. Uh, you know, I, I, I did a lot. Uh, and I watched a lot of sport and a lot of a lot of heroes, and it was always the the ones that were a little bit different to everyone else. Um, you know, and, and Glenn had that in him. You know, Ian Botham was my my hero at cricket. Jimmy White was my hero at snooker. I loved snooker growing up, um, and so there was a, a common theme running through all the people that I admire, and it was it was just those players that just made the game look easier than it should be. What was it like growing up in Guernsey? Because being based in one of the Channel Islands, it's, a, it's an upbringing that not many who go on to play for England, Southampton, playing the Premier League have. Uh, no, that's very true. Um, uh, I think it, I, I'm still the only person from, from Guernsey uh, to represent England. Um, you obviously got Graham so from that other island um, as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, it was... It was kind. Of, I mean, I loved growing up in Guernsey. It was just the, the safest place and just the happiest place for for me. My childhood there was incredibly happy, um, uh, and I loved every minute of it. I never really knew though, growing up, just how good I was at football because coming from a little community like that, you kind of you kind of always look to the mainland and think that everybody on the mainland is is better than you because you just live in a little island. Um, and so I wasn't really sure how good I was in comparison to. The standard of footballers my age in the mainland, so um, it was all a bit, it was all a bit strange and, and all a bit uncertain until I kind of got to Southampton um, and started playing in the youth team. Uh, and the first season I was in the youth team, there just scored loads of goals that season, and I just carried on what I was doing in the in the leagues in Guernsey. See, on Guernsey, do you think one of the main reasons you were able to develop and and be a sort of, for want of a better phrase, a sort of street footballer that was willing to try new things was because of your upbringing where, because it was a, a small island community, you knew everyone, everyone knew you, so you could try things and not be worried if they didn't come off? Yeah, I think I think that was uh, perhaps one of them. I didn't really, I mean, we didn't really have proper, I don't remember having proper coaching, you know, actual football coaching from a from a professional coach. I never had that until I was probably 14 or 15 years of age. Uh, you know, in this day and age, that's that's really late. I mean, you, you, you've got clubs now grabbing kids at seven, eight years of age um, and getting coaching into them early on. And I think that was probably the reason more than anything is that I wasn't, you know, it, it was just for me, it was freestyling. It, it was experimenting. And I used to, you know, I used to also play a lot of football with my older brothers. So my, my brothers are all... Um, I think it's uh, four, five, and six years older than me. That might be yeah, actually four, six, and seven. Actually, four, six, and seven. Yeah. Um, and so I was always playing with them and their mates. And I think playing against bigger kids um, also made me uh, develop um, quicker than than possibly a, if I didn't if I just kept playing with kids of my own age. Uh, I think that that was also one of the big things that helped. In terms of getting the move to Southampton, how did that come about? And did you ever trial any other clubs before you went there? Yeah, I was at uh, I was at Oxford um, before Southampton. I actually um, my my dad had a, a friend that lived in Oxford that was uh, connected to the football club in some way. And one of my older brothers had had a, a trial at Oxford and had been um, 
had done really well in the trial and got offered a professional contract. He was 19 at the time, um, and and he turned it down. Uh, and I can I can remember kind of thinking back then, you know, I was only probably 14, 13 or 14 at the time, thinking, "Blimey, you've got a chance to be a footballer. Why are you turning that down?" Um, and then um, my dad's friend and obviously realised that I was quite good at football as well, uh, and they got me for a trial uh, that went well they wanted me to to go and live over there so I left my school in Guernsey I moved over to Oxford with and lived with my dad's friend um, but I was only there for about a month I started a new school in Oxford and I, I lasted two days at the school and I absolutely hated it couldn't just couldn't hack it at all um, so I went back to Guernsey uh, but I knew at that point that Southampton had showed a bit of interest in me as well um, so uh, so I had the trial at Southampton uh, did really well there uh, I then had a, I, I was given an associated schoolboy forms to sign, uh, sign that, and it meant that I could finish my school in Guernsey, and I just came over to Southampton in the holidays, which suited me better. I think uh, it was just kind of too much of a big, um, a big leap at 14 years of age to leave home and go and live in a in a strange place, start a different school. It was just all a bit too much for me, uh, and the Southampton thing worked out perfectly. I finished my school in Guernsey. And then once I'd done all my exams, I got a letter through the post from Lauren McMenemy um, asking me to, uh, if I'd like a, to start the YTS scheme on the 1st of July. Uh, no, 1st of, yeah, 1st of July. Um, and then uh, it was quite funny because the letter came from Lauren McMenemy. So when I, but in the, in the intervening period between receiving the letter and starting my job, Laurie left the football club. So when I turned up at Southampton Football Club on July the 1st, 1985, we actually didn't have a manager. Uh, and Chris Nicholl was appointed about 10 days after that, I think. When you get to Southampton, you mentioned the YTS scheme. We know that the academy structure in football is completely different from those days now. What was that like for you, getting involved in doing the jobs and coming through with the likes of Alan Shearer and Steve Davis? Um, it, I, I loved it, to be honest. It was hard work. It really was. I mean, it was a it was a proper. I mean, people look at footballers and think, you know, you do a couple of hours work and then you you sod off home for the rest of the day. And yes, it did get like that later on. But those first couple of years uh, in the YTS scheme, they were they were proper nine to five jobs. You know, we didn't uh, we we had to get into work. We had to uh, make sure that the uh, all the kit was ready for the for the professionals. Um, so we had to get we had, we were assigned two players each. To look after so we had to make sure their kit and their boots were on the van ready to go up the training ground so we turned up at the Dell we get all the kit get it loaded onto the vans we we go to the training ground first team train we do our training at the same time when we finish our training they just they uh, they just chuck their kit all over the place and sod off home and we then had to go and clean up get the kit back to the back to the Dell uh, into the uh, into the laundromat that was at the Dell um, for the ladies to get the kit ready and washed for the next day's training. And then in the afternoon, if we didn't train twice a day, which was quite often, then uh, we were then doing jobs in the afternoon. We'd be you know, tidying up the, the changing rooms, the medical room, the boot room, uh, the weights room, um, the away team changing room, home team changing room. And we would, we would be doing jobs and they would be inspected uh, to make sure we'd done a decent enough job and we wouldn't be allowed... Uh, to leave the premises of the Dell until Dave Merrington had, had a look round and gone, okay, yeah, that's a decent enough job, you can go home now. And it was like that every day. Do you think that's something that the modern academy structure lacks in the sense that you guys 
were involved in doing that. So you had the added responsibility as well as playing, which in a way maybe helped you mature quicker. Yeah, uh, I, th I think very much so. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of molly coddling that goes on at a young age now, which um, I, I don't think helps the players um, enormously, if I'm honest. Uh, I think the way that it's structured now kind of almost, um, I don't know, it, I don't kind of see the same mental strength in players now that you that you did maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, I think they've become a, a little bit softer. Um, and, you know, that's that's fine. If that's the way that, that the world wants to go, that's that's not a problem. Um, but I, I just think that from a, from a discipline point of view, and I think what you're noticing now is, as I think you're right, is that players um, will now, you'll get more players making their debuts at an older age. So they'll, they'll be a lot softer on people and they'll give them more time to develop. Whereas in our, in our case, we were kind of uh, given until our 18th birthday, you know, from 16 to 18, uh, to prove that we were good enough to, to at least warrant a professional contract to maybe play in the reserves for a, for, a, for a season. But if you then hadn't broken into the first team by the time you were kind of 19, um, or, or perhaps 20 at the latest, you were kind of, you were on your way and you were, going back down the leagues and, and see if you can get a club there. I think um, football clubs now will will keep hold of players. Um, and you see some players making their debuts in the first team at 21, 22, 23 years of age. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of, for me, that's four or five years of your career already gone before you've made your debut. And it seems a bit odd. The other thing I, I'm interested to ask you about on this subject is, when we look back and when everyone looks back at your style of play, as you mentioned, when you grew up, there was very little coaching from a young age. So when you look at your career and the goals you scored and the, the, the magic moments that you created, is the reason, it's, it's a hard question to ask, I suppose, but do you think the reason we don't see players like yourself in the game anymore to an extent, is that due to the fact they're coached at a really young age and things like fitness and and, and speed and being able to cover every blade of grass is, is prioritised rather than someone like yourself who off the cuff could produce a sheer moment of magic? Um, yeah, I think to a certain extent, uh, I think that's true. Um, I, I think there is a, a, an argument for, for being overcoached um, and for not allowing a little bit of personal expression uh, and, you know, experimenting in... Uh, uh, on the field of play. I, I think that was the big thing for me is that I love to, to, to experiment. So when I was in training, I, I, even when I was, you know, 24, 25 years of age, I'd still be on the training ground. I'd still be experimenting, trying to find something new, trying to, trying to do something different. That's going to give me a little edge in any moment in a game. Um, and the, the perfect example is the goal that I scored at Blackburn. Um, I can specifically remember going out and training and, practicing that shot from that kind of range because I didn't like to just put my head down and smash the ball as hard as I could and hope it went in. That wasn't kind of what I was about. I'd like to, I wanted to, to give myself the best opportunity so that it wasn't, I wasn't relying on luck. So I, I could go and practice this shot that I was, that I hit. I mean, that most shots that you hit from that kind of range, you'll see most people are just putting their head down 
and, and they're hitting it and they don't really have any idea where the ball's going to go. They're not aiming for a specific part of the goal. Um, and that was the difference for me in that Blackburn goal. Um, I was 35 yards out, but I was aiming for a specific part of the goal and to hit the shot with a specific trajectory that meant the goalkeeper was going to have no chance. Um, and, and it all just came out perfectly. And I, I practiced that particular shot in training a lot in the weeks leading up to that game. Am I right in saying with that goal in particular that obviously the goalkeeper, Tim Flowers, that you basically told him, I'm going to hit that tivel in that net and I'm going to, I'm going to do that? <laughs> uh, I think that's a bit, a bit of an urban myth that's been created. I don't, I don't remember saying it to him. I mean... I might have done it in, in a bit of, in a bit of a joke uh, beforehand, which and I can and I I don't remember. Other people have other players have actually come up to me and said that that's what they thought I'd said, um, but I don't physically remember saying that to Tim. I, I do remember telling him that I would score past him when he left, uh, and and he uh, he bet me that I wouldn't. So uh, so it was nice to get one over on him. In terms of going back to Southampton in the start, the YTS coming through, you make your debut against Norwich. It's a 4-3 defeat. I'm interested to know what Chris Nicol was like for you as a manager because, as you say, Laurie McMenemy sends you that letter, then he's replaced, and then you get in, you're doing mm. well in the youth setup, and then, as I say, you break into the first team in that crazy game at Norwich. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was 3-2, I think, when I came on. Uh, so I didn't really make much of a difference in the game. But... Uh, uh, I think Chris, for me, um, I kind of looked back and I got a little bit frustrated at times with him because he, he left me on the subs bench a lot. So, I, you know, I, I made a lot of appearances from the bench in those first uh, two or three years of my career. Um, and obviously, I was, I was a young kid. I was keen. I wanted, to, I wanted to play. I wanted to get on the pitch and start games and show what I could do from the start of the match as opposed to just being brought on for 20 minutes at the end. Um, so, but you know, that was just me. That was my mentality. I was a, I was a cocky little kid. Looking back, you know, I was 17, 18, 19 years of age, uh, and there were some good players in front of me. You know, so, um, so yeah, I had to be patient, and I, and I kind of understand with time why Chris did that for me. And uh, in the end, I actually quite enjoyed playing under Chris. We had a pretty entertaining team under him. When you break into the team in yard young, what are the senior pros like with you at that point? And Bear in mind, obviously, for younger listeners to this, that when you broke into the team, it was a far more physical game. Yeah, it was a far more physical game. You're right. Um, there wasn't as much protection awarded to the uh, to the flair players that there is today. That's for sure. Uh, the, the other thing was the standard of the pitches that we played on. Um, you know, that's a that's another big thing that doesn't get taken into consideration when when you kind of look back at, at players and you think, oh yeah, you know, they were good players and and stuff that they were doing. You look back at some of the pitches we played on, and, and there were players doing doing good things on pitches where you could not always read the bounce of the pitch. You know, where you were playing on mud heaps at times in in some pretty crap conditions, uh, and yet you were still producing moments of quality. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I I did enjoy those days, I must admit, and uh, uh, but certainly players these days have got it a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely, especially with the pitch. It's like a bowling green now these days, as, as you know. And in terms of yourself, you break into the team, you're doing well. A young Alan Shearer breaks in as well. Was it obvious that Alan was going to go on like yourself to have a top career even at that age? Um, I, I always felt Alan had, the, had a, an incredible mentality about him, very strong uh, mentally, um, and was not afraid of, of putting himself about. He was always uh, very keen to... to 
do battle with any centre-half he came up against. Um, and so I had no doubt that he would make a career in the game. If you would have said to me at 19 years of age, Alan's going to be the leading all-time goalscorer in the Premier League, 60 ahead of anyone else, I would have probably looked at you and gone, mm, not so sure about that, if I'm honest. Um, but I have to say, um, when he went to Blackburn, he just turned into a into a machine. He, he wasn't prolific for Southampton. If you look back at his record, um, it wasn't particularly great. Uh, but a lot of that was due to the team that he was playing in. He had myself and Rodney Wallace playing in the same uh, forward line as him. Um, and me and Rodney, although we were playing as wingers, we were kind of, we was used to like come inside and we used to like scoring the goals. So Alan did a lot of work in terms of running the channels and, and can, uh, um, assisting goals for me and Rodney. Um, and when he went to Blackburn, everything changed because they had two wingers who liked to stay wide, liked to, liked to get the ball in the box. I think they had Stuart Ripley on one wing, I think Jason Wilcox, I think, was on the other. And, and Alan was literally told, I don't want you to go outside the width of the 18-yard box. You know, I don't want you running the channels. You know, we've got wingers, they're going to cross it. I want you in the box. Um, and his poaching instincts were just top draw. Uh, and in the system that Blackburn played suited him perfectly. Uh, and his, his career just, just went through the roof from that point. For yourself, your career goes through the roof in the sense that you break into the team, you establish yourself when you're young, and under Chris Nicol, you win the Young Player of the Year award. When you win that, do you feel that you've arrived as a player? Uh, yeah, that was certainly um, the, my, my kind of big breakthrough season. Apart from uh, the season when I made my debut and I, and I scored 10 goals that season, you know, a lot of them were from, from off the bench. Um, and then I had a couple of years where it was just a bit in and out of the team and not really scoring that much. That that season, for me, I think a big turning point for me was was Danny Wallace getting sold, actually, to Manchester United, uh, which meant there was one less obstacle in my way to get in the team. Um, and so that season, I got 24 goals. Uh, and, yeah, at the end of that year, um, I did, yeah, I felt like I had now become the first choice in, in the team, which, you know, hadn't been the case for the first three seasons. Something I, I want to touch on before we come to Chris Nicol even and Ian Branfoot coming in um, is the fitness element. You've always joked about fitness and admitted that it was never your strong point as a player. The, the story in the book about the, the egg McMuffins and things and the way to training, I think, is absolutely tremendous. Um, can you <laughs> explain a bit about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the fit kind of thing. I, I mean, I've taken a lot of stick for it, and I just kind of go along with it. You can't, you can't change mass people's perceptions of you. Uh, um, but in reality, uh, I wouldn't have been able to be a Premier League footballer if I wasn't particularly fit. That's you know, I mean, if, if you know, if you've got a scale that, that's up to a hundred, and you've got somebody like Franny Bernardi who, who goes through the scale and goes to about one hundred and ten. Um, I mean, in terms of that level of fitness, I was probably maybe 97, 96, 97. So I was a bit below everybody else's level of fitness, but it wasn't that much. You know, I did all the pre-season with everybody. Uh, I did all the runs that everybody else did. They might have been a little bit slower. Um, and, I, and I didn't have quite the, the lung capacity that, that, you know, some players had. But the, the difference in fitness levels wasn't the massive difference that people kind of make up when they're trying to take the mickey out of me. Well, I think that's very true. And as you've said, we 
to to play in the Premier League and be part of the Premier League 100 club, you you need a you need a, a high level of fitness to do that. So absolutely spot on. And one of the big things in the book as well, Ian Branfoot comes in <clears throat> a bit of trouble with him in terms of the way he managed. What was that like? Yeah, it wasn't so much the way he managed. It was the it was just the way he wanted his team to play. You know, I, I never really fell out with him uh, on a personal level. Um, however, the, the the style of play changed quite dramatically from what we were doing under Chris, um, and we became a team that was just became functional and uh, were, wasn't particularly interested in keeping the ball on the deck. It was just all about getting the ball in the channels, winning set pieces, and trying to score goals from from that. It was it was that basic, you know. He was a, I think he was a close friend of Graham Taylor, and I think the two of them were actually together at Lincoln, I think, at some point. Um, and they'd obviously yeah, had the same beliefs on how football should be played. Um, and it was just totally contradictory to everything that I'd kind of grown up thinking about football. Um, so it was, a, it was a tough two and a half years when William was there. You mentioned the fact it's a tough two and a half years. Be honest, at that point, did you ever consider leaving the club? Um, I think... Uh, it probably did cross my mind at some point because it wasn't really enjoyable. Um, uh, the football side of things has always been, you know, really important. Um, and being happy has has been very important to me in my life. And uh, when the football was like that, it wasn't particularly enjoyable. So yeah, it would have crossed my mind at that point to think, you know, I'm not sure this is going to be for me for the next few years. So, um, but then uh, there was probably a year before Ian actually got the sack there was a lot of pressure coming from the fans to to get rid because they weren't enjoying it so I kind of kind of realized that you know this wasn't going to last forever and uh, I can probably stick it out and uh, and just try and do my bit in the team in the way that he wanted me to and then and then try and do the the other bits and, and ignore a little bit of his advice sometimes in certain areas of the pitch where he'd expect something to be done and I wanted to do something different and I was willing to take that chance to try and score a goal or, or create a goal that was going to win the game and, uh, and then he wouldn't be able to give me a ball. Well, he certainly did that in the sense that you'll think of the 93-94 season, 25 league goals. How proud are you looking back in that? Yeah, that, is, that's, that was one of my, um, my favourite achievements, I think. Um, I think because I scored over half the goals that the team scored that season. I think we got 48 goals that season and I got 25 of them. And, you know, for someone who wasn't even playing centre-forward at that point, I was in midfield most of that season. Um, you know, that's, a, that's an achievement I'm, I'm really, really proud of. In terms of Ian Branfoot, you mentioned the fact of his style of play didn't really suit yourself and lots of the players Southampton had. He Pressure from the fans, he goes. The legendary World Cup winner, Alan Ball, comes in. The way you speak about Alan in the book is absolutely brilliant because it's clear just how much respect and awe you had for him, but crucially as well, how much respect he had for you as a player, as he, he said in one of his first training sessions. I know, yeah, that was um, yeah, that, that for me was a, a real massive turning point in my career uh, because he he came into the club and obviously as a as a World Cup winner and some I mean I was somebody who loved football, just obsessed with football, so I knew I knew all about. Alan as a player um, and for somebody who, you know, that elite group of people, Englishmen who have got a World Cup winner's medal, to walk into the changing room as your manager, uh, yeah, I, I already had a, an enormous amount of respect for him. 
Uh, and then for him to then turn around in the first training session and, and pick me out in front of everybody and tell the rest of my teammates that this is your best player, this is your best chance of getting out of the, the relegation scrap that you're in. And every time you get the ball, I want you to try and pass it to him. And, and for me to hear that coming from him was just unbelievable. And it just sent my confidence levels through the roof. And for the next 18 months, you know, that I just rode the wave of, of the belief that the manager had in me. And that was the best 18 months of my career by a million miles. See, but you say that's the best spell of your career by a million miles. Is, is part of that reason, as you've said, having a manager who's got full faith in you and just... As, as you said, is, is, is happy to go on the record to say that, not just to you, but in front of the dressing room as well? No, absolutely, 100%. You know, I think it's, it's something that's not really spoken about too much in football um, because people just kind of focus on uh, on your ability and what you can do on a pitch. What they, it's, it's all the intangibles that people don't really understand and, and don't really talk about too much because they can't measure it in terms of goals or assists, you know, it's not a statistic that you can, that you can just put up there and everyone go, Oh yeah, I can see that. And I can compare it to that. Um, it's, it's an intangible that somebody who's got that belief from their manager, you can't, you can't measure how much confidence does to a player. Um, uh, and it's, it's really strange to talk about because you've got nothing to back it up uh, apart from, you know that the the how you feel as an individual walking onto a football pitch, when you know that the manager's got your back, you're, you've got the freedom to express yourself in a way that you know if you try things and they go wrong, you're not going to get bollocking at half time and get substituted when the manager gets the ump. Something that I I think with yourself, Matt, that I think not just myself, as I say, you're one of my all-time footballing heroes for the reason that when you watch when. Anyone watches the clips of, that are there of you. What I love, it's, as I say, it's just something I feel we don't see enough of in the game anymore. Just someone who is willing to try things, who is willing to get the ball, have no fear, take players on, and not scared to shoot from, from any angle when they think they've got a real chance of scoring. When you were on a football pitch, especially under Alan Ball, were you just, did you have the confidence to try anything? Pretty much, yeah. During that period, um, when my confidence levels were the highest they were ever during my whole career, um, I felt like I could score from anywhere. You're right, I, I did. Every time I went on the pitch, I just felt like a chance came my way. I just felt that confident. That I knew I was going to be in a, in a sharp frame of mind uh, and any half chances, I was you know, going to have a good chance of converting them. Um, and it's, yeah, so it's an odd feeling. It's a great feeling because you, you kind of feel like, you know, you can walk on water almost, um, uh, and you just. But it's one of those things that that can come and go very quickly, and you, it's not always that easy to, to grab it back again. So you've got to ride it while it's there. Um, uh, and for me, that that period lasted, yeah, as I say, eighteen months. A club I'm interested to talk about with you is Manchester United, and the reason I want to talk about them is because part of your goals and, and your influence is Ron Atkinson leave the club, Sir Alex comes mm. in. And then when Sir Alex is in at the club, the famous game of the Grey Kits where you terrorised United that day. And I know you were speaking with Gary Neville recently and he admitted that as soon as they went to the Dell, they just thought, oh no, here we go. Letizia is going to be on fire and the Dell are going to be on top of the pitch getting right at us. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nice to hear you know former players come out and, and kind of admit that that was how they were feeling when they came down to our place. Yes, uh, 
you know, it was, it, and it, for us, you know, we we knew we were we were never going to win the league. You know, for us, you know, a lot of the time staying in the league was the was the first priority. Um, but the the one thing that kind of really motivates you is is when you do get those home games against the the best teams, um, and kind of it, it's almost like oh, the pressure's off. No one is expecting us to win today. So it kind of gives you a little bit of freedom and it takes the shackles off a little bit and you can go out and, and express yourself. And, and, you know, some of my favourite memories were, were beating the big teams down at the Dell on, on occasions when everyone thought we had no chance. In terms of the Dell, understand why Southampton had to move to St Mary's. You, you've seen lots of clubs move stadium because the game moves on, as we all know. But do you think that... Do you wish there was a way they could have kept the Dell in some way, shape or form? Because when you look back at Southampton, going to the Dell, as Gary Neville and other professionals have said, was something they dreaded doing. Whereas they quite like St Mary's now because it's a lovely big stadium, lovely pitch and they feel com- more comfortable there anyway. Yeah, it certainly um, it certainly took a few years, I think, to get used to the new stadium. And you don't, you don't get the same atmosphere in the new stadium as you, as you did at the old one. And for, for obvious reasons, you know, the, the crowd right on top of the pitch. You know, I think one of the worst things UEFA did, I think, was, was create that. I think it's, it's their ruling that meant um, uh, that they had to, that the new stadiums they had to build, uh, the stands had to be a certain amount of metres away from the pitch for them to, to qualify to play in UEFA competitions. Uh, and for me, I don't think that, that rule was given much thought because it, it definitely detracts from atmospheres in the place the further away that the fans are from the pitch you ask the West Ham fans well that's very true and that's something that's been 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 shown a lot as you've said and the big question I suppose I'm putting you on the spot with you've, you've been asked it a hundred million times you're probably fed up with being asked it but 25 goals in that season playing under Alan Ball you're on fire you're the Southampton talisman there's interest from Tottenham there's interest from Chelsea Blackburn links with Manchester United and others do you have any regrets at not moving on from Southampton? No, not a single one. You're right. I've been asked that question a lot. And uh, to this day, I, I look back and uh, I'm proud of what I did at Southampton. Um, uh, and with my hand and my heart, I can honestly say I don't, I don't look back with a single regret about turning down the, the moves that I had, a, had a chances to make. In terms of being a one-club man, as you've said, you don't have the regret of that but you've got the, the sheer pride in being a one-club man and receiving the, the, the trophy from Athletic Bilbao and their fans. I loved watching that. I thought it was a lovely gesture. Just describe that moment for yourself and your family. Yeah, that was, uh, that, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, you know, they'd, obviously, they've got the, the, the connection with the Basque people there and they only choose people from that region and, and they wanted to um, have an award that, that recognised people who were, who were loyal. Um, and yeah, to to be the first person chosen on that list was uh, was pretty special. You know, I've been joined by some some pretty decent footballers as well. I think Paolo Maldini uh, joined after me. I think Carlos Puel uh, has has also joined. So um, yeah, it's not a bad little club to be a part of, and uh, very proud of that. Very proud indeed, and, and rightly so. And again, a question you've been asked a lot: When Graham Souness comes in, what was he like as a manager? And of course, tell us all about the Ali Dyer saga in terms of. What was he like to train and then play alongside? Um, yeah, so Graham came in and, uh, you know, he had a pretty fearsome reputation as a manager. Um, but I think he'd had his heart operation 
um, before he came to us. And I think uh, it had calmed him down a bit as a person. So I don't think we saw the real fiery side of, of Graham Souness. Um, uh, and I got on pretty well with him, still do to this day. Um, you know, we had a we had a differences. He, he dropped me a couple of times and uh, singled me out in a, in a meeting one morning, which I thought was a bit out of order. But you know, it's not something that you, you hold grudges for. Um, and I've got an immense respect for him for what he's done in the game as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, the, the Ali Dyer situation um, <laughs> was a peculiar one to say the least. Uh, it really was. And, I don't think anybody's ever really gotten to the to the the bottom of how he managed to dupe his play onto a Premier League football pitch. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I, we trained with him, obviously, in the in the, the days leading up to the game, and I was like, wow. I thought I actually thought he'd won a competition to come and train with us. I wasn't actually sure if he was a serious trialist or not. <laughs> um, it, it it just goes to show, you know, things were very different. And 25 years ago, uh, the fact that somebody could could ring up a football club, pretend to be someone else, go give them a trial, uh, and then for him to actually get on the bench for the game against Leeds, it was just all it was just all a bit weird because we'd had a few injuries in the forward positions. We were so we didn't have a lot of, of forwards to stick on the bench, and uh, and so Graham decided to put him on the bench in this game against Leeds, and uh, on he comes after 20, 20 odd minutes and. Um, uh, he has a he has a fair old run around. Um, misses an absolute sitter, chance to score uh, at, the, at the Archers Road end, um, uh, and then eventually I think Graham's got. I'm not sure he's actually that good. I better I better drag him off again here. So he came on a sub and then got subbed off. And uh, yeah, the worst bit was that yeah, the, the bloke that he came on as a sub for was me. So um, so yeah, the, the player recognised as the worst player to play in the Premier League uh, was was actually. The one that came on for me, and uh, I have to say it was because I was injured, not because I was having a stinker. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> um, after soonish, you have Dave Jones as a manager, then Glenn Hoddle, and one of the things that, and obviously I know Glenn was at England as well, but one of the things that I think I find quite sad, but again very honest from yourself, which is nice. The honesty in football is what we're all after, is the fact that you mentioned he was your hero growing up. You admired him as a player, but when he became when he was your manager, there wasn't that same that same level of respect, whether that was from him to you, in the sense that there was a kind of element. I don't want to say jealousy because obviously only Glenn could answer that, but there was certainly yeah. certainly something there because for some reason you you didn't get the respect I feel you deserved from Glenn. Um, yeah, I I'd agree with that. Um, I think you're right. Uh, he did. He did pick me in a couple of England, uh, couple of England games. Um, obviously, when uh, when he was in charge of the national team, and but I, I I turned Chelsea down when they tried to buy me, and he was manager. Uh, I didn't know if he took that as a bit of a as a bit of a, you know, I don't know if he if he was annoyed that I didn't want to speak to him because I, I my agent rang me and said Chelsea are interested. Um, this is 1995, and I was quite, quite happy. I just had another good season at Southampton. I scored 30 goals that season. Uh, I was quite happy. Um, so I said, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm fine where I am. Uh, so my agent then brings me back five minutes later and says, uh, Glenn, Glenn wants to speak to you um, to try and convince you to come and join Chelsea. 
Um, and at that point, I just said, I've made my mind up. I don't want to talk to him. Uh, and that was it. Um, so I don't know if, if, he, if he was annoyed that I didn't uh, accept his phone call, um, which, by the way, would have been completely illegal because you shouldn't be tapping off players that are under contract at football clubs. Um, uh, I don't know if that was a, a, a source of uh, a grudge that he held against me for that. But if it was, then why pick me in, a, in an England squad in the first place? It's, that kind of wouldn't make sense. But I think the... I, I do think a lot of people during my career have, have kind of always likened me to the way that Glenn played. And I don't think he was comfortable with that situation. Uh, I think he felt that he was, you know, head and shoulders above me and I shouldn't be mentioning the same breath as him. Well, that's something I, I totally agree. And as I say, it comes through in the, in, in, in the book when you say that. And one of the things I find interesting was when it came to training sessions, I know a few people have actually said this at clubs he's managed, good coach and very well-respected coach. But even when he was coaching, there was still that element where he wanted to join in and I don't want to say show off, but he wanted to show his skills, even though it was all, should have really have been all about the players at that time. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I think uh, I can remember when I was in the England squad, actually, under him, we had, a, we had a training session and I remember after the training session, uh, there, was the, there was three of us uh, went off to take some free kicks at the end, practice our free kicks. And it was me, David Beckham and Glenn. And, um, and I, think, I think Glenn was, was desperate to prove that he was the best free kick taker out of us. Um, sadly, he wasn't. Bex was. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's, it, it's all a bit odd and it, it's all a bit unnecessary, really. I mean, just as, as an example, my my testimonial match my testimonial program that i produced uh for my match the guy that was researching the program went out and got quotes from all uh so i played on the nine managers at southampton uh, and so my researcher went out and rang up all these managers to get them to do it just a little paragraph to go in my testimonial program um uh, a little paragraph from each one of the managers about what it was like managing me uh, and out of the nine of them, eight of them were very happy to talk about it and did their bit, uh, and one of them refused to. <laughs> and we all know who that man is, as you've said. And the the next manager, the, the towards the latter stages of your career, a few more injuries that's frustrating with you. You work under Gordon Strachan, a big name in, in, in football, obviously as a player in Manchester United, Aberdeen winning European trophies and as a manager, he's had a successful career as well. Very big character. How? What was he like with you in terms of man managing you? Uh, Gordon was brilliant. Um, you know, as I said, it was only less than a season that I played under him. Uh, the last season I was there, so it was a bit, uh, it was a bit frustrating for me. I'd like to have um, perhaps spent more time under him because he, uh, uh, I think his his man management was really good. He treated different people differently because everybody is different and. You can't just treat everyone the same, and the senior players got the respect from him. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, out of that, we ended up having a, a quite a successful short period under Gordon. Uh, the team reached the FA Cup final, you know, a good, good league finish. They were a, one of the fittest teams in the league. I mean, that's probably one of the things that I might not have enjoyed under Strack is that the, the, <laughs> the season that he took over, I, obviously, I finished at the end of that season, so I never did a pre season under it. So I retired uh, at the end of that season. So the following season, when they're having 
they start pre-season training and I'm sat on a beach somewhere uh, just to just to get a feel for everything. I used to, I used to ring Franny Benali up at, at the end of every day and go, what's he actually doing today? And when Franny was telling me the stuff that they were doing, I was like, yeah, I think I'll retire at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> we need to obviously talk about the last game at the Dale. You're struggling with injuries. Gordon Strachan pulls you and says, you're going to be on the bench for this game. Did you... Uh, Stuart Gray. Stuart Gray. Sorry. Sorry, Stuart Gray pulls you. And for the, before the last game at the Dale and says to you, you're, you're going to be involved and you're going to be on the bench. Did you foresee scoring the last goal at Liddell in such memorable fashion? Um, yeah, I don't know about memorable fashion, but but yeah, from the I think it was the Tuesday before the weekend, uh, Stuart had said to me and Franny that um, you know come come the final whistle at the weekend, it's the last ever league game at Liddell. You and Franny are both going to be on the pitch at the end because for what you've done for this football club for the last fifteen years, you know you deserve to be there when that happens. Um, uh, and that was brilliant of him to do. That just showed there was a little bit of room for sentimentality still in football. Um, and from that night onwards, from that Tuesday night onwards, every night I went to bed, this is how sad I am, every night I went to bed imagining scoring the last goal at the Dell and what it was going to feel like. And so uh, so when the chance came, and it wasn't it wasn't an easy chance, it was, you know, it was a pretty difficult uh, attempt to score from, especially with you know, it's my left foot. And um but I knew if I was if if any chance fell to me, I just had this unbelievably strong feeling. It didn't matter how difficult the chance was, the ball was going to end up in the back of the net, and I was going to be the last person to score the last goal with Dell. Uh, and when that happened in the 88th minute, it was just the, the most incredible feeling. Um, and uh, the, the adrenaline rush was just, and the noise from the the stadium was just like twice as loud as any noise I'd heard a goal celebrated at that stadium ever before. It was just it was just ridiculous. And um and I can remember we, we actually had another attack just after that and Chris Marsden had a shot which looked like it was going to go in and uh keepers just tipped it over the crossbar. And um and I can remember I went I was jogging across the, the box to go and take the corner. And I just had this urge, I just want to go and give the goalie a cuddle for making such a good save. I didn't want Mazin to score the last goal. <laughs> but I restrained from doing that. And then as I'm jogging over to the corner, I'm thinking, I don't want to put this in the box. Someone might score. I want to be the last person to score the deal. So, uh, so I put the ball in the corner spot, waited a little bit. And, uh, and then Wayne Bridge come running down from left back. And, uh, and I took a short corner, so I didn't put it in the box. And as I took the corner to Bridgie, the ref blew the final whistle. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that do. <laughs> See, in terms of that last goal at the Dale, with the emotion around it, the, the nature of the goal, as you say, you, you dreamed of it scoring the last goal, but as you say, you couldn't maybe have dreamed the memorable fashion, 88th minute, that it would have been. Is that the goal, the best goal of your career in terms of the goal you look back on with most fondness? Yeah, the, the goal with the most fondness, yeah, for, for sure. I mean, um, it, it really was kind of fairy tale stuff. Uh, you know, I, that was my first Premier League goal of that season. You know, I'd spent most of that season injured. Uh, it was a frustrating season. Um, and, you know, it was, just, it was just one of those things. I think I'd scored one goal in the League Cup. I think that season, that was it. And, um, yeah, it just seemed to be something that was just, it was just written in the stars. I mean, if you'd written that script and, and put it in a film, uh, people would have watched that film and gone, and they've gone. Yeah, that's too far fetched. You ain't having that. 
as I say, it's, it's written in the stars is probably the best way to sum it up. And you get the last goal at the Dell, as we talked about, towards the twilight years of your career. When retirement comes and the injuries you had towards the end, were you ready to, to move on from football and was there no regrets? Um, yeah, I'd kind, of, I'd kind of seen it coming, um, to be honest with you. Um, well, the, the week leading up to the last game at the Dell, um, I'd signed uh, a new one-year contract for, for the following season. Uh, uh, I knew it, it, it'd been a, a bit of a struggle. Um, and, uh, and I just, if I hadn't signed that contract, um, I think I've got a funny feeling that last game at the Dell, I might have called it a day uh, and, and just ended on that note and, and didn't bother with the next season. Because, uh, um, looking back, the next season was, a, you know, again, injuries, just, just a real struggle for me. Um, so I barely played that season and it was really frustrating. I mean, the good thing, I had a, I had a lovely testimonial with St Mary's at the end of that season, which was kind of a nice way to, to finish my career with my testimonial with, you know, a lot of ex-England players there and, and my teammates at the time. And it was just, it was just really, it was a, a nice way to say thank you to all the, the fans that have been so brilliant to me for the last 17 years. You mentioned the testimonial, just how proud and just how much does it mean to you to be known as the Southampton legend and lay God to so many people that aren't even Southampton fans, as I say, for me, and I don't just say this because you're on to blow smoke up your arse or anything. You genuinely are one of my all-time footballing heroes. And when I watch the game now, you see some fantastic players. But for me, players like you don't exist anymore. So you'll always be one of my all-time footballing heroes to the day I die anyway. And I'm only 24 at the moment. So, I, as I say. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter's just trying to interrupt me. <laughs> Could be homeschooling. <laughs> No, it's, it, it's lovely, you know, to, to be um, to be thought of so highly by the, the Southampton public is is something that uh, I'm very proud of. You know, I've got the freedom of the city down here. I've been given an honorary degree, an honorary doctorate, um, you know, and it's, and it's lovely to still go down the stadium on a match day. People still want to have a photograph taken and still want an autograph. And, uh, you know, it's nice that you've left those kind of uh, impressions on people after after that amount of time. One of the questions that I really do need to ask you, it's a question, again, you've been asked a hundred million times, but it's something I think that's important. When it comes to penalty kicks, the record, it's 49 penalties, 48 converted. Uh, 47 out of 48, I think it was. 47 out of 48. Incredible record when you think on it. Mark Crossley, obviously, he he gets the, the, the honour of saying he's the only person to have saved the <laughs> CA penalty kick, but... Describe how you prepared for a penalty because to have that record, especially in the top flight of, of English football, is absolutely sensational. Yeah, I think the, the, the big thing about penalties for me is that the, the person taking them has to want to be there. I think that's the, the biggest thing. You have, to, you have to look forward to taking penalties. You, know, you, you can't be having any negativity in your, in your mind when you're doing it. Um, and, and that's something that I was pretty good at. You know, I've always had a real good, positive mental attitude uh, to things. And, uh, and I think that was one of the key things for, for my penalty record is that I didn't let negativity into my head when I was taking them. You know, Mark did well to, to save the one that he did. His, his timing of his movement was, was really good. Um, and uh, the, the really annoying bit for me about it wasn't actually 
wasn't actually missing the penalty because you know at some point you know everyone's going to miss at least one. Um, uh, the annoying bit was that I missed the, the easier chance was the rebound which he palmed back to me, and from about six yards I managed to get scoop it over the bar with my left foot, and and that rebound annoys me more than missing the penalty. Something, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth by saying this, but am I right in saying when it comes to penalties, I'm, I'm sure this is right, I could be wrong though, don't worry. Um, when it comes to penalties, one of your quotes is, I can accept you, like Mark Cross, is saving the penalty, but I can't accept someone missing the target. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not it's not ideal for a, for a professional footballer from 12 yards to miss a target. Um, you know, I understand if you're if you're really trying to put it right in the corner that there's a there's a chance you might just miss it. But really, from 12 yards, uh, I, I think it's a cardinal sin for a, for a penalty taker to not make the goalkeeper make a save. Um, and I think you know, in any in terms of competitive matches, I think I missed. I put one past the post when I was a kid, when I was like 15 or something, and that's the last time I can remember missing a penalty that I didn't make the goalkeeper make a save from. Something else that I think is admirable of yourself is the fact that you've clearly got a love of football and after Southampton you, you turned out for Guernsey in 2013 but you also had a brief spell with Eastleigh as well. Was, just, was football just something that although you had retired from Southampton you still wanted to, to continue playing if you possibly could even at a lower level? Um, yeah, I mean, there was the Eastley stuff was a was a favour for a mate, really. David Hughes, who was a player at Southampton, uh, was the assistant manager there. Um, you know, they were well down the leagues at this point. They weren't uh, obviously in the conference like they are now. They were probably about four or five leagues lower. Um, you know, they've had a, a pretty spectacular rise. Um, and yeah, it was it was quite. I just wanted to do him a favour, really. I've always loved football, and you know, it was a, a level that wasn't you know overly competitive or, or particularly serious. Um, so I was happy to go along and help him out, give him a bit of PR, and uh, raise the profile of the club a little bit. So uh, that was kind of that was kind of why. But I've always carried on playing. I still again, we've got an ex Saints team now. We have a few games a year, and uh, I still try and turn out for them when I'm not too fat. Because um, <laughs> even now the old weight fluctuates a little bit, uh, and um, and I still like a game of five aside every now and then. So uh, yeah, I still still got a massive love for football. Obviously, can't do this interview without asking about Soccer Saturday. Just how enjoyable is that, spending time with Jeff and the boys? I interviewed Jeff recently, and he was saying that when he works with you, Charlie, Merce, and, and Tomo, the original lineup, he says it's just the best way to spend a Saturday afternoon. No, he's absolutely right, actually. Uh, and I, I've kind of... Um... I've kind of missed them more than I expected to during this lockdown. If I'm honest, <laughs> uh, you, you do. You just you just realise it, it's you know you, you don't know what you miss until it's gone, and, and it's absolutely right in this case because uh, you know it's um, it is great fun on a Saturday afternoon to to sit with your mates and chat about football, and we've all we've all got quite strong opinions on things, and we the great thing is we can all have different opinions on different subjects, and we can discuss them, and it can get quite heated. Uh, but we know as soon as the, the subject moves on to the next topic, nobody holds a grudge where we just crack on and we're, we're all mates together. Something that's interesting about Soccer Saturdays, you used to be able to cover Southampton games, but I know they've changed that for all you guys. Was it hard to commentate in a Southampton game because you've got so much love for the club? Um, yeah, I think it, obviously the, the reporting method is 
slightly different when you're watching your own team. You know, if uh, if, if the opposition score against Southampton, um, it's very unlikely you're going to hear me go go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I think I think teams were uh, were a little bit. Some fans of some teams were a little bit concerned that, that, that the reporting wasn't quite as neutral as it should be when we were watching our own teams. And uh, you know, so I, I don't mind. It's it's actually quite fun when you know Mercy's watching Saints. And I can still watch the game without having to react to to goals and stuff. But uh, but I actually did get the season. I got to uh, I did get to watch Southampton against Crystal Palace uh, at, at, over Christmas. We had um, and the reason they let us do it is because there was two of us watching the game so they had me and Clinton Morrison watching the same game so we balanced stuff the uh, the opinions of the, uh, of the of the players watching another thing you've been involved in recently and I know it's coming back soon is Harry's Heroes it's something that um, a show that I really enjoyed just not only for the football and the banter but the inspiration behind the idea of of weight loss for for many kind of middle-aged guys who are maybe struggling with that even younger as well yeah, absolutely. You know, it, was a, it was a good concept and, uh, you know, it, it brought lots of, of different areas to attention to the people. You know, the mental health side of things was yeah. was huge when you saw what Merce was going through and, uh, you know, the way that he's kind of come through that. You know, he's, he hasn't had a bet for way over a year now. He hasn't had a drink for way over a year. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's good to see that there's some success stories from it as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to to see the edited version of, uh, of what we we filmed last year. You're back also working at Southampton again now. You're involved there. You're doing your own podcast as well with the club. What's it like working with the club that you love and spent so long at? Yeah, it's really nice uh, because there was a there was a time when uh, under a, a previous chairman we weren't kind of made to feel quite so welcome at the club, um, and so it's now it's nice to be back involved and uh, and. He made the one of the official club ambassadors it was a you know it was a very proud moment for me you know after all these years that they they still um, still want me to to be around the club on, on match days whenever I can when when my commitments with Sky allow uh, it's it's a nice feeling and um, yeah I, I've always I've always have a, a lifelong association with Sunderland Football Club. The last question I've got for you, Matt, before a quick round of quick fire questions is. In terms of the club, have you ever had the chance to manage Southampton or coach at the club, and have you ever considered it? Um, not really. There was a time when we were in the, halfway down the championship when Harry Redknapp left the club. Um, it was uh, me and Franny Benali had a couple of discussions about perhaps putting our names forward uh, for the job and to see if we can you know, try and help the club get back into the Premier League. Uh, but those discussions didn't really get that far. Um, Clive Woodward was at the club at the time, if you remember that period. Yeah. Uh, uh, had a discussion with him, and, uh, and after that discussion with him, it kind of the idea didn't really go any further, if I'm honest. So, um, so yeah, not not really that close. In terms of quick fire questions, the first one being the best players you played with. Uh, played with, um, I would say, uh, Gaza, Shearer, Rodney Wallace, Ronnie Eklund. Brilliant. Best against. Uh, best against, I would go uh, Baggio and Henri. Underrated player, the most underrated you played with? Um, I would say Marion Pajas. Most inspirational captain? Jimmy Case. Best manager for you? Alan Ball. 
the best goal in your opinion? There's a lot of them to choose from that you scored. <laughs> uh, the goal of Blackburn, 35 yards past Tim Flowers. A few non-football ones for you. Favourite band? Oh, Lone Star. Is, uh, the other one I've got for you, Malibu and Coke or a pint of beer? <laughs> I've never had a pint of beer, so it's got to be Malibu and Coke. <laughs> um, I nicked that one from the book, but it's okay. Um, beach holiday <laughs> or city break? Um, beach holiday. Favourite food? Oh, anything that's bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> if you could play under any manager in world football now, who would it be and why? Um... Guardiola. Uh, I think that his, his way of wanting to play football um, suits me absolutely down to the ground. Well, the pressing side of things might be a bit of a problem. <laughs> the last one I've got for you. I'm going to create a five-a-side tournament here. I want you to pick five players from who are your colleagues at Sky to represent the Sky five-a-side team. And then I want you to pick five from your time at Southampton for the Southampton five-a-side team. Oh, five at Sky. Um, that's a good question. There's not that many goalkeepers. Uh, I suppose we've got Matt Murray. I think it's probably the yep. have to be the goalkeeper, and then I'd be in the team. Uh, Graham Sooners would get in it. Um, Merce. I mean, this is a very attacking team. Me, Sooners, Merce, and Charlie Nicholas. Who would be in the Southampton team? Uh, and the Southampton team would be uh, Tim Flowers, Alan Shearer, me, Ronnie Eckland, and I need a defender. Uh, I've got to pick Franny Benali. If I tell you that the Sky Sports team is managed by Jeff Sterling and the Southampton team is managed by Ian Branfoot, which team are you choosing to play for? <laughs> uh, Sterling's. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Matt. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome, mate. No problem at all. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a